Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Okay, this week on the show, we are continuing a series of conversations we've had recently where we've talked about minimal. Now, this hasn't been a formal theme on the show, but it's something which has come up due to who we've had on, basically. So Jeremy P. Caulfield, we, we talked about minimal a lot with, and also with Damien Lazarus. So... This week on the show, we have someone who was very much at the heart of the late 2000s, I guess, minimal scene as part of Minus. And, you know, generally speaking, in that scene as a resident of New York and also of Berlin. So it's ambivalent. However, we are also discussing his subsequent work as LA4A. And actually, the first instance of this conversation is discussing his forthcoming album, album Zer, I could say as LA4A. So that's a different alias, it's a different musical approach entirely. Kevin McHugh is his name. Let's call him Kevin. In fact, I will call him Kevin in the conversation, although I will be <laughs> introducing him as ambivalent. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy, actually, with an interesting story. And we get into some stuff, actually, that I didn't know about uh, during the course of the conversation this week. And yeah, it was a really interesting chat, actually. I said chat, it was like two hours. But, but yeah, we talk about, we do talk about minimal. But also, you know, the wider themes that we've also been discussing recently on the show, which is to say the the state of the current scene. And um, yeah, Kevin characterizes the show as a place where old men and women come on to complain, which I think is slightly unfair. That's um, not quite the totality of what <laughs> this show consists of. But we do get into that stuff. And there is a bit of complaining, but also a bit of uh, drawing some positives from where we are now and some potential um, ways forward 
which could yield some positive results. So yeah, overall, it's it's good this week. You're going to enjoy it. You're definitely going to enjoy it. So before we get into it, a reminder that if you're enjoying what we're doing on the show, then you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There are two extremely fairly priced tiers. First is four US dollars a month. That's the solidarity tier. And then the musicality tier, which gets you basically all the music we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels is only 10 bucks a month. So you do get bonus stuff too with the solidarity tier bonus podcast. There's one going up this week, which is the second half of a double header where I reviewed the best tracks according to Mix Mag of 1997 and uh, subsequently the best tracks of ni- of uh, the best tracks of 2007 according to Resident Advisor. That was an interesting exercise to conduct, I can tell you. And yeah, you would enjoy listening to that if you were a Patreon subscriber. So yeah, if you want to do that, then yeah, absolutely do it. Patreon.com slash scuba official. We'd love to have your support there. That'd be nice of you. Very nice of you. But if you can't do that, if you don't have the spare cash, that's completely understandable. I know the cost of living crisis is actual crisis at the moment. It's, um yeah, it's, it's not a joke. So yeah, if you, if you are unable to do that, then you can just leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That really genuinely does help the show. So hit that five-star button wherever you listen to this, please. That would be nice of you too. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And join us in the Discord if you've got anything to say about the show. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you into that server. Okay, without further delay, here is Ambivalent. Ambivalent, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good. So, okay, as we were just saying, ambivalent, but but a man of many aliases. So, uh, I mean, you're called Kevin, obviously. So, I'm going to refer to you, refer to you as Kevin. But like, yeah, that's that's how most people know me. <laughs> yeah, right. So, okay, okay, let's let's just kick off with it. The, the idea of aliases, generally, something is actually something that I was thinking about last week, and I think like the. The kind of um, the uh, kind of old school mentality of having a different alias for every sort of different, slightly different facet of your sound. Um, does it? I'm not sure if it quite works in the same way anymore. Like, I, I mean, obviously, if you've got them established, then that then you know, obviously it makes sense to continue doing it. But I think for a new artist, maybe they don't think about it in quite the same way. What do you think about that? Um. Well, we're, I'm going to start off with disagreeing with you, Paul. How about that? We can start. Please we do. We can start there. Please do. Um, I, I think, all right, well, rather than getting into what works or doesn't work, because I think that's a really, that's a really subjective and hard thing to, to assess, like, you know, according to which standard, right? But I, I, I personally believe that there's ample room for creativity in all directions and there's ample room for presentation if anything i think that if it's not well encouraged by the social media era then actually even more reason to lean into it um i i think that um you know i mean the the whole idea of a producer working under different aliases goes back to jamaica and the the dance hall and dub scene uh, so it's foundational to production culture, DJ culture, all of that. And I think it, as such, it's always going to be part of the DNA of this. You can't take it out. Um, 
the question of whether it works or not, it, it's like, well, to what end? Is, does it work in terms of getting you more gigs? Does it work in terms of making you more famous? I don't know. But is it creatively a great option? Well, well let, me, let, me, let me just clarify what I meant by that. I mean, I think the, the way that... Um the way that people mostly get their music now is obviously through DSPs, and uh, I think that the the way that artists are delineated on DSPs mean that any kind of dilution of your, I guess, insignia on those platforms is a potential kind of drag, right, in your in your quest to become better known. So I think like that that's just something that wasn't there before, like in the era of physical product which is you know what we're you know, talking about coming out of this is where the, you know, the culture was essentially formed like that just wasn't uh i mean clearly like a, a degree of um mysteriousness um was was part of the i guess sort of part of the attraction of having um multiple aliases and, and with obviously other factors as well but like there just wasn't this i think a kind of built in uh, sort of disadvantage maybe that you have now with the way that people are getting their music. That's all I remember. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's that's fair. I think that there also, though, wasn't always the built-in expectation that um, if you were putting out music, it meant you wanted to be well-known and tour the world <laughs> and, you know, have a lot of clout, right? I mean, all those things are... There, there's so many things that have changed. And you're right that, like, there's a disadvantage to... Um, how things are presented on DSPs. My personal feeling is that DSPs, you know, stre- uh, streaming platforms, let's call them, are are the anomaly. They're they're not they're not the they're not the be all and be all and end all. And I actually think that we give them too much credit to assume that they're going to continue to be the paradigm by which all things are measured. This this will pass in the same way that CDJs will pass in the same way that vinyl has had a life. I mean, all these things come up and go, and you know, we'll, we can also talk about different trends, both uh, in terms of medium or media, and different trends in terms of sounds and music. And certainly in my history, and I know in yours, you've seen uh, moments that that felt like they were. Uh, always going to stay at the top crest and peak and fall and return. And so these things, these waves happen. And so, you know, I just think people do should do what, what feels right at the time. I also think that it's great. You know, I have music that's out there that I don't know that I'll ever acknowledge. Um, I have, you know, aliases that I've done that I, maybe people know about, but I don't talk about a lot. I, because I just feel like my practice is making music Getting it out is the completion of that process, but getting known in it isn't part of the process uh, as integral to me, especially now and at this time in my life. Okay, I mean, so I guess the second uh, like bit of pushback to your pushback <laughs> would would be, um, I mean, I absolutely hear what you're saying about you know there are there are cycles and there are obviously um, you know each individual. Uh, like facet or each individual each individual trend I guess you could put it like that that comes up tends to have its like natural life right I think that one sort of larger trend which I don't think is going anywhere is just the digitization of music and the way music um, is disseminated and the way people kind of interact with it and I suppose um, even if we even if you factor in and say uh, you know Spotify might be just 
gone in 10 years even even under those circumstances i think like there will still be a digital landscape and and in that landscape i think having a a sort of single avatar is going to be like the way people tend to do it now just just because that's the way people tend to do it doesn't necessarily mean it's the way for um you know music as a whole and you know the, the bit of music that we operate in is supposed to be quote unquote underground, and I put that in massive quotation marks, right? <laughs> so, so, you know what what worked for commercial music historically, that's not what's supposed to work for us anyway. So, I guess that would be my other other comment there. What do you think about that? I I think this, we've reached a point where I don't need to push back on your pushback on my pushback. <laughs> okay, I think I think I think we ground. found some place to yeah. <laughs> Okay, so tell me in specific about the way you have used aliases. Like, I mean, how how much of uh, like musical nuance has been the kind of point of differentiation that you've used in terms of starting a new name and all that stuff? Um, well, I mean, I guess for, for for folks who are listening and don't know um, about me much, I the uh, probably the more known alias that I have is ambivalent, but I also have released a bunch of music under an alias LA4A um, and other aliases as well, other projects, other duos, other, you know, um, collaborations, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, how have I approached it? I mean, I it's it's changed at times right i think to a large degree i was i was in, i was locked in a situation that um that was very confining for a number of years um i was signed to a record label called minus people might know that one and um the 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 framing of that deal that situation was that i was exclusive to that label um, and therefore all of my output had to go through that label. Now, at the time that I agreed to do that, it was the label that everybody wanted to be on. It wasn't necessarily that much of a sacrifice and felt, you know, really exciting to me, um, cause it was the place I wanted to be. So, uh, to that end, I was, I was stoked, but it, as I developed as an artist, it became really confining and I left that label, ended that relationship and started releasing a bunch of stuff that had been pent up either creatively pent up or literally that had been sitting on hard drives um looking for a way to get out and that was sort of around 2012 2013 there was this big change for me in terms of uh how i approached releasing music uh going from this very monogamous confining um streamlined thing to uh to something where i was able to work with a lot of different labels and have them assess where i fit with them have me be able to make stuff that um was you know in a broader spectrum and um yeah so that was that was one approach to it and and since then a lot of it has also been that i have relationships with other producers who I really like working with and I can do something different with them than I would do on my own. And so I have a project called PTA that's me and physical therapy. I have a project called Long Lost, which is me and Juan McLean. Um, I have a project called Jake and Amber, which I did with a- another artist who 
doesn't want to be named. And then I went and continued that under the alias Amber. So there's a bunch of different stuff that I've done. I've even in the during the pandemic, I released some ambient music under my birth name. So you know, it's like, I just float things where they feel like they fit, rather than trying to fit everything under one, quote unquote, brand. Mm, yeah, okay. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And there's like many uh, aspects of that answer, which I want to dig into and which I in fact had written down. But um, okay, so I mean, do you find then that um, delineating is useful in a sort of creative kind of a way in terms of the way you're thinking about making music? I mean, do you make music for a specific alias, for example? Or do you kind of like fit it in once you've kind of made this, the, the music? Yes, but no, but yes. <laughs> How's that for an ambivalent answer? Um, I, you know, um, in general, I I just make. when it, my, my studio practice is really just to get down to it and pull a thread and see where it takes me. And later I will usually assess, you know, where do I feel like this fits um, not just in terms of what alias would it fit under. Sometimes that's the last part of the piece of the puzzle. Um, sometimes it's an early part. Sometimes right away, I like, you know, from the first sound I'm making, I'm like, oh, I know where we're going and this feels familiar. And yeah, let's let's use this palette. Um, the LA4A stuff is maybe the most proscribed Um in terms of like the the kinds of boundaries and even those I'm starting to break out of. Um, but, but LA4A was really a project that started as a kind of creative exercise. I wanted to make, I wanted to make a batch of tracks that were as old school as I could get in terms of methodology, not necessarily in terms of sound, but I kind of knew that that was going to end up landing on a sound but it was like okay there's only i'm only allowed to use one drum machine and i'm only allowed to use it in an like in a classic way only you know this synth and that synth and like nothing else and it was about creating limitations because in the digital era we have endless uh options and there's a great creative uh value in limiting those options and exploring how much you can get out of those limitations. So that was something I was doing. And um, my friend, your friend, our friend Martin uh, from 3024 was over at my uh, studio in, I guess this was probably 2012. He was over, or no, it was, it was actually 2013. So it was exactly 10 years ago. He was over and I played him that stuff. And he was like, man, you really got to put this out. But you know, maybe do it as a white label and see how it goes. And, and I did, and that was the start of Delft. So Delft and LA4A are 10 years old. Um, so, so to answer that question, there are sometimes limitations where I put those kinds of strictures on things. And if that is a, an avenue that has been valuable for me creatively in the past, then I will tend to like kind of gravitate towards those sorts of, let's say rules or boundaries. Um, but other times I'll just get in and start fiddling. And before I know it, it's an ambient track and that goes in the ambient pile. And so I'm just actually today as we're talking, um, or I don't know if I should acknowledge when we're recording this, I'm, I just released a, an album called Folio under my LA4A alias. And th- it's called Folio because it's a collection of tracks that all seem to finally fit together. But some of those tracks 
are as much as seven years old. Some of those tracks were made three years ago. Some of them were made a month ago. Um, and it, but they all just seemed to coalesce in this way where each of them was something that I felt like, oh, this doesn't have a place yet. I'm going to find a place for it later. And sooner or later, I, I figured out like, oh, this goes with this. And if I have one more from that column, I could actually put them all together. And it's less like an album where I sat down and went, all right, here's what I'm going to do. You know, you were talking with with Bone about sound banks and things like that. And when you kind of sit down and make something and shape it all together and then kind of dive deep into it, that's one approach that I've had success with in the past, but this was something very different, which was like looking at a backlog of things that I hadn't released in a long time um, and starting to see how they came together. Mm. Yeah, I've been listening to it today. It's great, actually. But uh, before we talk about that, let me go back to what your, um, like the initial LA4A stuff. So <laughs> if I can ask you specifically, what, what, was, what were the bits of kit that you used for that really early stuff? Uh, well, I mean, the 303 is central to LA4A, right? Um, that's, uh, that's been the, the thing. And actually, I mean, I, I, I've maybe talked about this story on social media a little bit, but the, the, the 303 that I own, I actually bought from Paul Wolford in maybe 2010. He was trying to unload some gear and it was just something that I'd always wanted to own for obvious reasons. Um, and I... It, when I was on minus, I was just like, yeah, doing a 303, doing 303 stuff on minus is going to be kind of a heavy, heavy burden to try to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to try to meet. So it just, it never made its way onto, um, onto, uh, any, any stuff that I was submitting to minus. And I was really trying to work my way out of being on minus during that period anyway. Um, but 303 was central to LA 4A, 808 was central to, to LA 4A. And then the reason behind the LA 4A alias is that I have um, a piece of gear called the Universal's 4710D, which is a four channel preamp and compressor. Uh, so, so essentially, what it is is it, it's a preamp array that um that has each circuit is a a 710 which is based on the 610 preamp and then inside that is also an 1176 style compression circuit and it it resembles the LA2A in terms of it having a tube architecture. Um, it resembles the LA3A in the sense that you can dial in solid state signal as well and this is the thing I explained to people. There was an LA2, there was an LA2A, there was an LA3, there was an LA3A, and there was an LA4, but there was never right. an LA4A. And so that was, I mean, it's super geekery. Like, I'm sorry for all the people who just fell asleep. <laughs> Anyone still listening, kind of, well done. <laughs> that's my explanation. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, you know, when you ask about the kit that was essential to LA4A, the, the most essential piece is the preamp and... Uh, recording signal compression signal that all the gear goes through because to me that gives this sort of this color of a mysterious piece of gear that should have maybe existed 30 years ago but didn't um and i'm sort of also using strategies that call to mind the way music was made 30 years ago when i first heard acid house and techno and fell in love with it. And it, you know, the, the material has always been about that love letter to that early time when 
you know, I was listening to records from Belgium and Holland and listening to records from Detroit and Chicago and how they all kind of fused in my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's really great sounding stuff and like the, you know, going up to the to the album, which as you said is, you know, partly stuff which was made a while back now. But like, I guess it's sort of, um, when you're taking that kind of approach, it's, it's easier, I suppose, to maintain a, a common sort of vibe, right? Um, I wonder though, like, I mean, having said that I really like it and I do really like it, how do you, how do you view um, the sort of tendency in dance music to be nostalgic for bygone eras of which I think this is, uh, you know, fitting quite neatly into, you know, like, how do you think about that? All right. So here's where I get myself in trouble. Um, if I, if I haven't already, um, I think that, um, in 2023 techno is a relatively conservative genre, a small C conservative, obviously, um, the pitchforks are already out. Uh, I I think that there is a very narrow box that is techno. Um, if it's too melodic, it's trance. If it's too groovy, it's house. If it's too if the if the beat is too syncopated, then it could be breakbeat. It could be electro. It could be all these things. Right now, the way we view the boundaries of what is and isn't techno are extremely conservative. So yes, and and I know you had this conversation with Bone. Um, and I, I think it came up a little bit in your conversation with um, with Jeremy Caulfield as well. Like, th- there's this. I, look, I think there are there are these boundaries as to what is and isn't techno. Like I was just saying, and and some of those boundaries I think become even more narrowly prescribed when we get into this quote unquote purist um, kind of uh, mindset. Um, and some of it is just the nature of the fact that it is a genre that's like, you know, almost 40 years old now. I mean, when was, when was Alleys of Your Mind or Clear? Let's say Clear. Clear was 1980 or 1982. Like, we're, and, and look, I'm not saying it as a pejorative. I don't think techno has to be the sound of the future. In fact, the first album I made is LA Foray, the whole track. The, the, the whole concept of the album, it was named Phonautograph after the first piece of gear that was trying to be recording gear before the phonograph. And all of the tracks on the album were named after failed pieces, pieces of obsolete technology that are no longer exist. Because the, the project of techno is not, in my mind, or at least for me, LA Foray isn't, isn't about sounding like the future as it's defined in 2023. It's about sounding, it's about ideas of the future that were shaped 40 years ago and falling in love with that. Look, I, you know, I love, I love sci-fi from the seventies, but sci-fi from the seventies has nothing on an iPhone, you know? So like, what is the sound of the future now that we all have more computing power in our pocket than any recording studio had in 1982, or 1989, or even 19, or even 1999. I mean, you know, I, you know, I started making techno in 2001, 2002 was when I first started trying to produce. I mean, what is available now is like my wildest fantasy then. So the idea of trying to find something that fits that future is maybe that dates me as, you know, a, a, 
a graying uh, 40-something uh, techno DJ, that's fine. I, I accept. Um, and I'm still fascinated by new frontiers in sound design and new capabilities. Um, but nobody's nobody's outdone the 12-tone scale. You know, like nobody's outdone... Uh, you know, there, there are, there are still tons of musical ideas that can sound captivating and inspiring without having to sound like they've never been done before. I mean, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. So, so is it a, is it like a set of aesthetics then, which you kind of, um, you sort of embrace when you decide to make a genre of music? Because I mean, like, yeah, there are, what you've just described is true for any number of like legacy genres at this point right like the vast majority of music that gets made fits into this fits into a a framework like this right exactly like this essentially whether it's techno or rock or you know pop in a classic pop whatever you know lots and lots of them um which are on the one hand you could see you could argue are kind of laboring under their history but then equally their history makes them what they are so is it just a question of embracing what it is you know the tangibility of what it is and what what um what we find attractive about these things are just those aesthetics is is that it so it's really about like really at the end it's it comes down to kind of fundamentals of creativity are you making for someone to hear in a specific context and is that context bounded by something else in the room, right? Like when you're making who is in the room, and I don't mean physically, I mean mentally, when you are creating who's in your head that's making it with you, is it, you know, in the same way that as when you're a DJ, you're not DJing just for yourself or to yourself, you're DJing to the people in the room. When you are making music that's meant to be heard, whether it's dance music or, I don't know, you know, experimental jazz or metal or whatever, um, is there someone in the room with you or is it just you and that music? And, and in my mind, both are valid, right? Like, I don't think there's, a, there's any shame in making music that is meant to be enjoyed by people. We, we all, the, the, the creative act is communi- is, is communication. And that's only completed when the thing that you made is absorbed by someone else, even if it's just one other person. And even if you made it for somebody who's never going to hear it, but the idea of like meeting expectations is also just part of that process. You know, if you're making a pop record, you're trying to make a hook that's going to stay in people's brains when they, you know, wake up the next morning. Um, you're, if you're, and, and, you know, to a certain degree that that's hopefully also something that people are still trying to do with dance music. I, I know that this podcast is a place where old men and women come on and talk about their <laughs> gripes with how things currently are. That's not all that <laughs> happens on this podcast. <laughs> the one thing I would say is that I hope, you know, that there is still um, a, a, an interest in making something that people go home humming to themselves at the end of the night. And I think that that, there, that is still the case. That is still a way to connect with your audience and make a long-lasting bond with them is to make and play music that resonates with them um, on, a, on a physical and an emotional level. Whether you're doing that under the rubric of, of, of a genre or a set of you know, boundaries as to what's going to fit in which club at which hour, that, that's up to everybody who's doing it. I don't know. 
Long answer, sorry. Yeah, I mean, no, no, not at all. I mean, like, the precise reason I asked the question actually was in with the knowledge that quite often on the on, on this podcast there is um, a degree of of um, hand wringing and kind of moaning about the state of current current music, but also the current scene. And you know, I guess I'm I'm just struggling with um, with the idea that you know everyone reaches a certain point in life and decides that whatever's going on now isn't as good as what used to happen right and that's just to, to, to some extent that's inevitable and i'm trying to f- separate in my mind or trying to figure out in my mind the extent to which what's happening now it's what the extent to which is legitimate to moan about what's happening now and the extent to which techno and dance music generally has to accept its kind of position as a legacy piece of culture at this point. And, you know, whatever happens now is a kind of refinement or a very incremental change. And we can't really expect, you know, um, you know, paradigm shifting developments at this point. And, you know, there are obviously developments, wider sort of cultural developments, which affect the scene, which it's easy to, to moan about too. So I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out really, like, uh, how much moaning is justified? You know. Um. All right. I've been going to clubs and raves for exactly thirty years now, and there has never been a time when somebody wasn't complaining about how things are now and wishing that things were the way they used to be. If the problem hasn't been solved in those 30 years, if we haven't been able to get back to some mythic, perfect moment, then it never existed. And, um, you know, I used to get this question in interviews that was like, oh, you know, what's your favorite record you made? And my answer was always the same, the next one. And that was, for me, that was the only healthy approach I could have to my own music. Because if you think your, if your favorite record you ever made was in the past, like hang it up. Um, the only way to move forward is to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday or, or at least better than today. Um, and so I try to spend less time grumbling about how things are now. Um, and more time thinking about what do I want to do? What, what's going to make my tomorrow better? What, what, what's interesting to me? Um, and then, you know, if there's a way that I can find a bridge between what's interesting to me and what's interesting to other people currently, great. But if there's no bridge there, then it wasn't for them and it, it will be for the people who will get it. Um, I think that there's... Um, and of course that's in an ideal scenario. We all want to make music that's going to like get played and get heard. Um, and it's a harder thing now than ever to get any music heard or noticed. Um, I, I just think that, um, okay. There, there's another thing I wanted to say is what you, you asked what's, what's okay to complain about. Um, if you're on social media, clearly it's okay to complain about anything and everything. And the more you complain about it, the better. Um, but, uh, being serious about it for a second, what I would say to, to avoid complaining about is don't complain about things that are people. Um, artists and audiences are doing something that, that 
everybody would do. Their absor- audiences are absorbing what's out there and responding to what excites them. Artists are pursuing what they think is exciting and what's going to engage with their audience. Those are natural and normal things. That does not change. I think it's completely fair to say, hey, we have systems that are not functioning right now, right? I mean, you know, I've been pretty outspoken on social media about about systems that were unfair to women, people of color, queer folks in this in this system, the system of, you know, DJs and records and clubs and festivals and and that there were people who were being excluded or or at a minimum being discouraged because they weren't seeing themselves represented. I, I've been pretty vocal about wanting to see that change because for too long it, the the business looked like people like you and me. And that's not interesting to me. I also don't think it's healthy. It's okay to talk about that system and say, hey, this system needs to change. It's also okay to talk about the system and say, hey, you know, the way we get information or the way we absorb music through, you know, a photo sharing platform and like endless amounts of free contextless music, maybe that's not ideal. And maybe that's not great for musicians. Maybe it's not great for audiences. Maybe it's not great for anybody, but it's really good for like, two or three billionaires, you know, that's okay to talk about that. And it's okay to say, that's not a system we like, and we want to find a different way to do that. And how do we do it and have that conversation? In my mind, that's completely legitimate. Um, if you are sitting on a hill grumbling, I don't know. Let me, let me, let okay. me hang on a sec. Let me, let me push back on that very slightly. With, with streaming in particular, um, and, and the way that people interact with uh, musicians now, on, as you said, primarily video and photo sharing platforms, people really like those. Like streaming is popular for a reason, right? And actually, if you're looking at it purely from a, you know, to use a slightly distasteful word, for purely from a con- sort of consumer perspective, like it's a great deal. That's the reality. Um, and people, like I said, it's popular. You know, people listen to Spotify. People, you know, it's it's a it's a dominant force, and I I completely agree that. Um, the model is uh, has fundamental problems with it, right? Um, but but if you're talking about you know people um, engaging with something, and you know I I completely agree that you know for example you know it's really difficult to call um, to criticize trends in music which are popular. Like for, you know, for example, the hard techno thing has been gone into ad infinitum on this show. But I, I find it difficult to criticize people for liking a certain kind of music, even if I might not like it itself, right? Myself. But I think like I think there's a danger in sort of pushing back instinctively against something like streaming. Because as I said, like, you know, this is how people are listening to music now. You know, that's just the reality. Okay. Uh I just because a system is well okay just because a system is used doesn't mean that it's um beloved and just because it's beloved doesn't mean it's ideal and so um people loved napster but napster was unsustainable for anybody i mean i know i'm dating myself again here but napster was a technology uh, 20 years ago where you could go online and just download at a time when streaming didn't exist you could have access to everything without paying for it. Um, and the people involved got nothing. So is Spotify better than that? Yes. Is Spotify fair? That's a whole other question. And, and that's, I honestly, I'm, I'm 
not so psyched on having that debate and conversation just because it's um it's it's exhausting but but i would say that just because a system is just because a system is used and engaged in doesn't mean that the people engaging in it wouldn't prefer something else and just because the people using it seem to enjoy it doesn't mean that everybody involved gets what they need Mm. okay um and yeah let's not talk about streaming in detail at all um (laughs) <laughs> uh, we were going to talk about your album actually weren't we before we started going around the houses like this so um, as I mentioned I, I've been listening to it today and it's it's really great I do like it a lot so you, as you mentioned um, it's called Folio because uh, or partly because it was written over a long period and written without I guess a you know a str- coherent aim in mind during the whole of it I suppose during, during the totality of the writing so tell me how your approach to making music in this way has changed over that time, if at all. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, this is a, a kind of this project is an exercise in limitations at the end of the day. So tell me about it. Yeah. I, I, well, I, you know, I, it's also it's it's interesting because this album is coming out there, there. I have two LA4A albums coming out this year, and this is the first one to come out, but it's actually the the second one to be completed. I have this, I have another album that I had completed. Um, and as I was making that, that one is much more formed in a kind of classical album way where it really has a defined sound and a defined architecture to what it is and isn't. Um, but as I was making that, there were things that would come out in the studio that didn't fit that album, but they fit with a few other things that had been sitting on the hard drive. And so this album got shaped not arbitrarily, but kind of haphazardly or accidentally, I would say. Um, and so it's a collection of things that found lines connecting them. Um, and I think that they are, and, and, and as such, most of those things were, were tracks that were made, um, that fit the LA 4A architecture, but didn't, um, fit in an EP or fit with other things that I was putting out when they were made. And so in a weird way, what it is, is like, it's kind of a, it's kind of a picture of the last seven years of LA 4A, even though there are things, other records that have come out during that time, these are things that sort of knit the spaces in between those records and up until now. Um, and that's why I wanted to put it out first, because I feel like it's got more common lines to what I have done in the past as LA4A than what the next record is going to be. And so, you know, without talking too much about the next record, since it's going to be a while before that sees the light of day, this is, in contrast, kind of, um, it's got more of a tether to the to the previous iterations of LA4A um, that I've released. And it's coming out on Delft, is that right? Yes. So, okay, how is it? Hang on a sec. Okay, let me let me just uh, remind myself. Is this the first album you've released on Delft? No, I released um, an album called Phonautograph on yeah, Delft yeah, yeah, okay. in 2016, yeah. um, and that one, for whatever reason, that one still gets. I mean, I get a Bandcamp notification every other day that somebody's buying a track from that album. For whatever reason, it got just 
shelled in clubs and it was like there's still tracks that like bicep and ben ufo and a handful of people uh like a made-up sound uh, i think you played a fair amount of it maybe there are tracks on there that just got a ton of attention in other people's sets and as such they still have a life which is great because i've kind of always wanted delft to be a place for people to find bangers even if you know, and that was the odd part about putting out an album was that I didn't want it to be an album that's like, here's 12 bangers instead of four. But I also didn't want it to be like, here's four ambient pieces and a bunch of stuff you're never going to listen to again. I wanted it to have stuff that felt relevant, you know? Yeah. I mean, the reason I was asking about the label is um, like, how much of a challenge is it to um, A&R your own material, basically. This is, this is a question I've asked myself oh, lots God. and lots of <laughs> I've, yeah, I've grappled with myself like <laughs> to various degrees of success over the years. So tell me, I mean, and, and as you mentioned, like you've you've been in uh, arrangements with labels which are much more hands-on, which are very hands-on. Um, so yeah, tell me about how you A&R an album in particular of your own stuff. Um, well, I mean... It, you know, Delft to a certain degree, the way that I've run Delft has been a reaction against my experiences at Minus um, and my experiences with lots of other labels. So to a large degree, it has been hands off generally, you know, we've, I've, uh, Delft has released a lot of music by a lot of artists I really, really respect and people who I am super, super thrilled to have, um, had the chance to work with and and generally i have always had it be that the releases were more shaped by the artist than by the label um i i just don't think that we are in a place in this music milieu where the label has to shape and analyze and cajole and um corral uh an artist's creative vision in general i i found who i wanted to work with and trusted them to give me the material that they thought best represented them and had the most impact and i'd say nine times out of ten i was correct in that um even if those were not records that were tremendously successful um, they were um, artistically really uh, profound moments, in my opinion. Um, so for myself, asking about how I A&R myself, it really is, you know, born out of the same impetus that, that I was like, no constriction, no BS, no... Um, no asking where the single is, no looking for what the hit is going to be, just what is artistically sound. And that is the guiding principle. Like, what fits together? Do these several tracks belong together? And do they make a coherent experience for the listener? Do they fit with each other? Do they in enhance each other? And, you know, for for Folio, for, the, for an example... I wanted an album where you weren't going to skip anything. And like in January, I listened through maybe 20 tracks. I threw out nine of them and 
listened again and threw out another and replaced it with something better and and those kinds of things and that was the that's the luxury that i have right now having kind of and we can talk about this if you want like you know i've made some changes over the last five years i've been a lot less visible on social media and in clubs and i've been gigging a lot less and not trying to be part of the the machine and as such giving space to my creativity to just let it be what it is rather than having to make something to some to to achieve some result other than the the creative result of that thing being a a cohesive whole to itself. So I have freedom there to say, yeah, you know what? I've got a track on here that's 147 BPM and I've got a track on here that's 125 and they fit on the same album. And, you know, that doesn't mean they have to fit in the same DJ set. Um, and I, I'm not saying that's a hugely brave breakthrough stance. That's been done plenty. It's not, I'm not uh, saying that, but, I, but just that like there are decisions that are open to me. There are thoughts that, that I didn't even have to consider about who's going to absorb this. How are they going to absorb this? Is this going to get me the phone call that I want? Is this going to make the agent's phone ring or get emails in the inbox? It, it, it wasn't about any of that. It was just do these things work together. And there's stuff that didn't make the album. Right. Let me, let me just ask you a quick question about um, what you just mentioned about stepping back a little bit from the machine, as you put it. So is that has that been unambiguously positive for you in its effects? Or do you feel maybe sometimes that you're missing out on something or missing out on some kind of uh, intangible... Um, benefit from being more directly involved in in clubs i suppose gigging is the most kind of like obvious thing that would spring to mind there but like yeah tell tell me about that well i'll start off by saying as a guy who has primary output has been under the name ambivalent there's no such thing as unambiguously positive at any aspect of my life like (laughs) it's always complicated so (laughs) um uh, you know, uh, I would say I would I, I would admit that it's not been entirely my own choice. You know, um, as an artist, you put yourself out there, and you're lucky if people engage in it, and if those people engage in it, and in a way that creates a, a monetized, available avenue for you, that's wonderful. That doesn't always happen, and it doesn't, and it and certainly isn't linear. Uh, sorry, it's certain, it certainly isn't linear. Um, the The truth is, is that, you know, I had a lot of, I, I had a lot of great fortune uh, over the years by putting out the right music at the right time in the right place. And I, I was incredibly fortunate that that was stuff that people wanted to release, other people wanted to hear. And that meant that somebody else wanted to book me to come play that music in a club. The, the connecting tissue of that, uh, that process changed, changes over time. And it did change. And the, the, also the, 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 the notion that putting out a record would get people interested in you, which would get you bookings, that architecture changed about seven or eight years ago, maybe more. Um, 
and I know people have <laughs> outlined their complaints with that on on this podcast and in lots of other places. Um, and, be, and the truth, let me let me stop you there. Let me stop you there for a sec. That seems like a long a longer time period than I would put my finger on. Can you just expand on that a little bit in terms of like the time scale? There? Well, in two thousand nine, I was living in Europe touring as a DJ full-time and people were saying, hey, there's this thing called Facebook and you really have to be on it because that's where everybody's spending their time and if you want to get people's attention, that's where you have to be. And that became the center of people's attention over the next two or three years. And then in 2014, Facebook changed their algorithm about how things got attention and who got attention and me and lots of other DJs and possibly you um, started to notice that that was changing and it was getting more difficult to get people's attention in those areas. Uh, And then Instagram became the thing and Twitter became a thing and those became avenues that you had to grasp people's attention. And, and all of those things became more and more where people connected with each other. Um, rather than, let's say, online forums or record shops, etc. And that was just a change in paradigm. Now, defining where that paradigm peaked or where other parts disappeared or, or slid into the, the range of relevant versus irrelevant, you know, that's not scientific and it's not sociologically airtight, so I won't necessarily say, but I definitely noticed that... Um, 2015 to 2016, there was a real shift in terms of being able to grab people's attention by putting out a successful record and that record leading to, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm, uh, again, that the, everyone's experience would be different, right? But I definitely noticed big bump, big changes in 2014 and I noticed big changes in 2016 that's a completely subjective experience. I, you know, as a, as a solo artist, I can only talk about what happened for me. Um, and there were also, you know, a ton of life pressures that changed things for me. Um, in the, in the 10 years that I lived in Berlin, that entire time, my then girlfriend and now wife was living in New York. And so I was doing an intercontinental, I mean, literally I got married in 2014 and the next weekend I was back in Europe touring as a DJ. Um, and my wife went back, you know, to the United States and I went to Berlin and kept the process going. So I was doing, you know, I was doing a long distance marriage for a number of years. Um, and that became, it was hard. It was also not as hard as people think because, you know, like, because my, my wife is a super, uh, motivated and focused, um, businesswoman who has her own pursuits that have nothing to do with techno and, um, and we're great partners and have a great communication and great relationship and great trust with each other. And we were able to make that work for, for 10 years. But at a certain point, I didn't want to be away from her for all that time. And then in 2018, I had some major health concerns. And, you know, I've never talked about this publicly, but I have an autoimmune disorder that um, became extremely troublesome in 2018. And in 20... Well, multiple times over a, over a four or five year period, I was getting emails from doctors in all caps saying, you need to get yourself to a radiologist and getting messages from doctors saying, hey, you know, if we don't deal with this, you're going to die at any moment in the next few 
few weeks, so we need to do X, Y, Z. Um, and you know, when when you confront those things, it changes your perspective perspective on what it means to be a touring DJ. Um, and what it means to be in a nightclub packed with a bunch of people. And, you know, a global pandemic changes those things, especially when it's your autoimmune system trying to, trying to destroy your body. Um, you change, you change your perspective on those things. Um, and when you are, you know, taking radiation doses and having to isolate from any other human beings in order to kill parts of your body so that they don't kill you. And, you know, you've got, you know, a the a, a taxi number on speed dial or uber ready to go because the doctor said hey if your heart rate or temperature goes above this then you're going to die so you have to go straight to the emergency room you know those kinds of things and then you know three months later they say hey you know you uh your your resting heart rate is so low we're afraid you might actually go into a coma so you know we're going to put you on a different medication you know you go through i, I went through those things um and in that process found that my relationship to the dance music world changed out of necessity, but my relationship to music changed. And in that process, um, you know, the, 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 the fundamental parts were like, I don't necessarily have to get that adulation from a crowd of like doing a great set. I don't have to necessarily, you know, be in these places at four o'clock in the morning, maybe the priority is get a good night's sleep and and figure out other ways to to pursue things. So, you know, those, the, all those things coalesce in this way where it's like, do I miss touring a lot? Sure. Do I miss being in demand and people wanting to have me come to their club or come to their city or their country and, you know, people being excited about my latest selfie on Instagram? Like, of, of course, all those things are... Um, that's that's a great period to to look back on, but it's not necessarily like a higher priority than being close to my family, you know, being close to my wife, being healthy, and um, and being able to make music. You know, touring in my mind was awesome because it allowed me five days a week to focus on what I wanted to make independently and of course i love djing of course i love the creative act of djing but when those two things didn't facilitate each other i knew which one was the greater priority for me yeah sure so okay this is not not an error i wasn't anticipating but how's your health now um it's mostly pretty good uh there are you know weird side effects not side effects there are weird aspects that i have to manage in terms of like i've i've gone through this whole process of learning re basically I had to rebuild a metabolism um and learning how to create energy management I'm I'm very lucky that I'm married to somebody who's a marathon runner who like finding a way you know she has this amazing gift at endurance sports and I've fallen in love with endurance sports because it's all about energy management and that's been crucial to my survival and it's been in a weird way like energy management is you know I've had this fantasy of like starting a, a podcast or a series that's about energy management because in many ways DJing is energy management music production and mixing and mastering are energy management um and but understanding how my body functions, what it needs and doesn't need, and you know what's dangerous for me and what's what's healthy, what I can what I can sustain and what I can't sustain, that's been a long process and it's up and down. Um, but I'm, you know, 
I'm I'm fine. If if there was any reason that anyone needed to worry, I, w- I would have talked about it publicly, probably. But um, but I'm I'm doing okay. Okay, so I mean, then the obvious second question is like during the more intense period that you were just describing, like and and coming out of it, like did that have any like did that have any like serious like sort of wide ranging and significant effects on the kind of music that you wanted to make? I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, and, but it didn't erase it completely, right? Like, I mean, so in in the spring of 2020, when all of us were locked down and terrified and, you know, like, I, nobody I knew could, like, relax or go to sleep at night, even, you know, and we were all locked in our houses. I just sat down and started making soothing music for you know, for my, my, my brother and sister-in-law to like put my nephews to bed at night and music that like would, um, that we could all put me, me and my friends could put on at dinner and just like have a glass of wine and like decompress because the news and particularly living in New York at that time where there were, you know, cadaver trucks on the streets and there were sirens all through the middle of the night. And then this eerie silence in a city that just didn't live like that. Um, I wanted to make music that was just soothing. And so I did, and I made this long, this album that was an hour long, that was all just like soothing ambient stuff. And I put it out and actually it's been one of the most popular records I ever made without any real promotion. Um, because I couldn't make bangers. I don't know about you. And I know maybe other artists went through this, but I was like, I couldn't think about clubs. Um, and I wasn't really interested in like getting back into the machinery uh, in that sense. But I had these tools and I had this language that I knew how to speak. And it was good for me to engage in that process um, without having to, with, 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 ha- with it having a different product in mind, a, a different end result, the end result still being having a physical and emotional impact on people um, changing their heart rate, changing their management, their energy management through music. But it was from a completely different approach, obviously. And I wasn't the only person who made ambient music during that time. I'd certainly, that was not unique to me. And lots of folks did it for probably the same reasons. Um, But also there were plenty of other things. And also my relationship to music as a professional changed because when I moved to New York, I suddenly had to pay for a studio uh, on a level that I never had to in a, in Berlin, which is a much cheaper city. And so I'd moved into composing for media and mixing and mastering and doing audio post-production and all of these things that changed my relationship to music from a technological and technical and professional standpoint. Um, so, and also let's be honest, people weren't really looking for hard banging techno from a guy who used to be on minus. So like, I wasn't really like anxious to try to compete on those terms. Um, so I was making music with a kind of freedom that was like, well, all right, nobody's knocking down my door trying to like, you know, get the next single out. I'm just going to make what I feel like making. And sometimes that'll be faster banging techno and sometimes it'll be other stuff. And then I realized that I didn't have to release it as whatever uh as regularly so stuff stockpiled and now i'm sort of like sorting through that stockpile and figuring out what's relevant to come out now right yeah 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 okay i mean that will that will make sense i mean um 
I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right that the... I mean, I guess, like, everyone... I kind of experienced this kind of like what seemed to be a sort of existential crisis during during this period, right? And and therefore, I suppose we kind of got a taste of what people you know want to make under those kind of like extreme um, conditions. Because, like you say, I mean, it was was extreme. I mean, I do my best not to talk about the pandemic too much on the show, but I mean, you know, I think it was a it was a pretty scary time certainly that 2020 periods and i think it you know it it got some really interesting stuff out of a lot of people actually to be honest a lot of interesting music was made that wouldn't otherwise have been made i think during that period it's impossible not to have what's happening in the world affect people creatively or communitarily right like i mean the scene you know bone was talking about this on your last episode about how you know there's a whole group of people who are going out now who maybe you know going out was not a part of their lives before the pandemic or you know their relationship certainly a lot of people's relationship to partying changed in in some ways healthy and some ways not healthy or you know also still being determined um oh did i lose you paul Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. The signal dropped out. Um, I, you know, so, so there, everybody's experiences changed in these interesting ways, both for artists and for audiences. Um, it's impossible not to. And I mean, lots of things change people's lives. I started my process of pursuing being a DJ and a musician more seriously after September 11th happened, you know, because September 11th, witnessing that and experiencing that and living through it changed my perspective on like, you know, what should I be putting my time towards? What matters to me? What am I excited about? And like, what's worth investing in if we could all, you know, uh, go tomorrow. So the, the, the way that things change, the way the world happens around us affects what we're interested in doing, what we put our energy towards, what we want to hear, what's exciting to us and what's not exciting to us. So it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Did you um, detect any sort of direct similarities in your reaction to those two events? Uh, Sure. Sure. One of them, I was in my early twenties. One of them, I was in my mid forties, you know, like there. So, so also, you know, my reaction to just things in general were different, but for sure. Um, and you know, I mean, living in New York city in, in both of those moments, um, when I won't say New York city was the epicenter of COVID for sure, but it was, we were hit much differently than, um, the rest of the United States. And we were hit differently than other parts of the world. Um, but certainly there were plenty of other. Yeah, it sounded similar to, yeah, it sounded worse than London. I spent a bit of time in Rome during that period and Rome was notably worse than London. It seemed kind of broadly analogous to that. And it was, it was scary in Rome. No, and Bergamo and the rest of Italy was really, really impacted. Yeah. And, and also, of course, you know, like the global South, like a lot of South America was profoundly impacted. Africa was profoundly impacted. India was obviously like just devastated there are, you know there are and yet you know the also china was very affected but in very different ways i mean people were locked in in ways that 
people in in the western world will will never really quite come close to so yeah a lot of, a lot of stuff anyway yeah i know you don't want to talk about the pandemic i'm also uh more than happy to move on to other stuff no i'm mean, gonna ask the question <laughs> but yeah i mean just in terms of um no i think it's a really interesting thing because i mean as a sort of observer as it were of 9-11 like you know we didn't have any kind of idea really i think like how what a kind of earth shattering event it was in new york i mean in america generally but in new york specifically i mean obviously um you know we didn't have a sense of it at all and the, the people that i've talked to latterly who were in the city at that time yeah all say it was just a profound event right well okay so speaking of september 11th and the reaction to it and it harmonizing with things that are happening now. I'm going to pick up one of your favorite subjects, which is, oh, <laughs> is it is it time for minimal to come back? Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> because you know, I, in terms of like clubbing and music, what I remember happening directly after September 11th was in, in New York were like the advent of the electro clash scene, which is like, if people don't want to talk about minimal, they really don't want to talk about electro clash, <laughs> <laughs> but I lived it. I was there, you know, I witnessed it. Um, and, and minimal as well. And, you know, so, you know, but what was happening before that was a period of really hard, fast techno. Um, it was you know, like, you know, a very muscular, very dominant, very macho kind of world. um, and people talk a lot, and this is a question that people ask me a lot, and it seems like it's come up with you a lot, is this question of, like, is minimal coming back? Um, because the current moment reminds people so much of that current moment. And and I would be lying if I said that the, the appeal of minimal... Um, I'd be lying if I said that that was not appealing at, you know, in reaction against the presence of banging techno. Of course it was a reaction in some ways against that. Um, at, at a minimum, if at, at least we were, you know, we were all just kind of saying, yeah, that's not so much our thing. We're kind of more for this. Um, and, 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 but that's what everybody's doing always artistically. You're always walking backwards away from something and, you know, accidentally finding somewhere different. Um, but do I think that we're, you know, ready for a rebirth of minimal? I, I think that only, it only comes out in what you actually see. And if I'm honest, I don't really see, it's not like I'm seeing this massive wave of fascinating artists really like pioneering a new sound or, or a reaction against the current spate of techno. It's just, it's not there yet. I mean, do I miss that time? Of course there was a, an electronic beats video recently where they do those, you know, blind test things where they have DJs, um, try to, um, ID tracks. And they did one about early, early aughts minimal. And it was beautiful for me because I recognized every one of those tracks and have amazing memories. And they're, that was a fantastic time. It was a really, really fun time. Um, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have been a part of it and been able to experience it on the level that I did and in the way that I did. Um, there's certainly a lot of things that I would change about that experience and about things that I um, was a part of. But, um, 
but I, but it was musically awesome and it's so fun to go back and listen to that stuff and understand it for what it is um but i also think that you know whatever comes next will be new in some way just because what's happening now feels reminiscent of something that happened 20 years ago we're not following exactly the same chronology or exactly the same way and if we were then before minimal comes the next would come electro clash so i want everybody to be ready for that <laughs> yeah okay let's be careful what we wish for um i mean okay so now that we're here let me ask you specifically then about your route to getting picked up by minus i guess which is the kind of end point here so at what point did you start making music i mean you mentioned that you started going out uh in the early 90s i mean actually um, um in fact before i ask you about how you started um making music there was a quote in a in an interview that i read of yours where you talked about ebm techno and, and punk as a sort of feeling like part of the same thing as a sort of young raver as it were I wonder if you could tell me about that and expand that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I was I was 18 years old in 1993. <laughs> so, um, and I, I grew up. I was I was lucky to grow up in the Washington D.C. area. Um, and so, Washington D.C. If folks who are listening don't know or don't weren't weren't around during that time, Washington D.C. in the 90s had a phenomenal punk scene. Um, and I won't go into detail about that. That's covered plenty somewhere else. Um, but it also had, um, a great scene for a music called Go-Go, which is from DC and kind of germane only in DC mostly. Um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a black music form that's played in black clubs by black musicians, um, and played on the radio and, um, and at the time, DC and Baltimore, which is only a one hour drive north, both had really cool underground rave scenes. Um, and, and DC also had a really awesome gay scene. And so gay clubs were the place to hear amazing DJs. And I was really lucky as a, you know, 16, 17 year old that, um, my friend in high school was picked to be the DJ in the industrial goth EBM room at a club called tracks, which was a gay club that would have mixed nights on, um, on Thursdays. And so on those mixed nights, there would be an industrial gothic EBM room. And there would be another room that was like, quote unquote rave that was like house techno acid, that kind of stuff. And of course you go to see your friend DJ and then you wander into the next room and, boom, there you are, you know, for me as a 16 year old, I would experience, I, that's how I experienced that music first. Um, and you know, on the way, on the way into Washington DC, which at that time was called quote unquote, the murder capital of the world, where it was like an incredibly violent, um, incredibly perilous city. And all of these clubs were in the most violent and dangerous neighborhoods. Um, we would also be you know, you would go to a punk rock matinee show that was all ages and you'd listen to, and then, and then from there you'd drive to, uh, another part of the city where there was, 
there were DJs playing and along the way you would listen to go-go on the radio and hip hop. And so like all of these things felt like they were, I know this is a strange word to use in 2023, but there was a counterculture and that counterculture felt like it was this thing that you discovered. And it's hard to explain now in the age of the internet, but before there was an internet where you could meet other people who who shared the same ideas with you and were maybe thousands of miles away, you had to find people like you who put up a Xeroxed flyer on a bill on a, on a posting board somewhere about a thing or somebody would, you would go to a show and somebody would hand you a flyer for another show or you would, you know, turn on the radio at two o'clock in the morning and somebody would be playing a piece of music or a style of music that you'd never heard before. Or somebody would pass you a dubbed cassette tape of a dubbed cassette tape that was like a record that you'd never heard. And so this was exposure to all of these ideas at that time. You, you, there isn't like, there isn't a section of the internet that you could go to where you could find all about this one style of music, or there wasn't a war between these people think this sound is the right one and that one is the right one. You know, uh, people from the like super idealistic political leftist punk scene in DC would make records with Chicago industrial people and Chicago industrial people would make records with Chicago house people. And, you know, Detroit techno people would make stuff with, you know, rap artists in New York this was this was just all this mix and it didn't feel like you had to like dress up in a costume that would get you to fit into this place so that you could hear this kind of music and that was your community and you were bounded by that world it didn't feel bounded now maybe that was partly because i was 16 or 17 and just naive but part of it was that all of it was just really new and it was exciting and it was literally underground i mean you didn't you didn't get an email about it. If you weren't there, if you didn't know about it, you didn't know to go. Um, and so you wanted to absorb everything and you would go to a record shop and just have them hand you what they thought was cool and worth listening to. And there are record shops that, you know, I I owe a huge debt to because somebody there handed me a CD or a piece of vinyl or a cassette tape and said, hey, you know, if you like that, you might like this. You know, I mean, LA4A to a large degree is largely indebted to Dwayne Harriet at Other Music handing me IF mixed up in The Hague in 2000 and me listening to that ad infinitum and fantasizing about what The Hague, what mu- the music scene in The Hague was like and how they were listening to all this like cool Italo disco and acid and Chicago house and, and how that really like and Detroit techno and how that influenced my identity and my image of what then became a record label called Delft. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, I think what people really struggle to understand now is how, um, how mixed up it all was, you know, and how, how little expectations there were in stuff like, you know, what you, what you would wear and like all that kind of stuff and how, how open it, it seemed, at the time and and you know like you say i mean i, I was very young at the time too and uh it's it's um you have to be a little bit careful about kind of like uh mapping on your youthful um tendencies to it but i i think it's at least partly true that i mean and for all the reasons you've just given too like you know it was just a much more of a kind of wide-eyed kind of uh, environment i think and much less prescriptive i think is that fair yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just, uh, I can't be grumpy about things not being the way 
they used to be because I just feel I, I instead focus on feeling incredibly lucky that I was able to be in the places that I was in, in the moments that I was. I lived in London in 1995, which is where I learned to DJ and started pursuing this idea that maybe I could be a DJ. And in London in 1995, it was explosive. I mean, you had drum and bass, you had Britpot, you had Cool Britannia, you had this whole like kind of wave. And, um, you know, like I, I went to, um, the, the, um, where Honest John's, like I would go to Honest John's to pick up records and right next to where Honest John's was on Portobello Road at that time, there was the, the Notting Hill, uh, flea market, um, was it flea market or was it car boot sale? I don't know what they called it. I think it was called the flea market at the time. Anyway, and like at that flea market, I bought um, a mixtape that was LTJ Bookham Love of Life, you know, in 1995. And I was like, oh, I keep hearing about this stuff. I should, I should understand what this is. And, you know, I literally, I still have that cassette tape and it's nearly worn out. But like every one of those records, like Adam F. Circles is on there, you know, PFM One and Only is on there. That was my exposure to those records. I, I didn't I, I didn't find it on a YouTube channel that was like, you know, a playlist of all of these things, but it's no different in the sense that like you discover those things and they become foundational to your idea of like what's possible. But I could go to one corner and buy old Herbie Hancock records um that were being sampled by DJ Premier in hip hop records in New York, and I could go down the street in London and buy an LTJ Bookham or a Groove Rider mixtape and then go out and hear them, you know, uh, at, um, uh, you know, on Old Street later that week. And so, you know, and then of course moved to New York in the, the next year and 96, 97, I was part of the Ilbient scene, which I know probably isn't doesn't mean anything to anybody now um but you know and then following that like i'm gonna say well, yeah what, what wait 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 what what what, what is that because <laughs> that doesn't mean that means nothing to me <laughs> tell me about that so uh in the late 90s there was you know in new york there was an explosion of drum and bass but there were also these like experimental uh sound parties that were um, thrown by a group called Sound Lab, and that was sort of critically termed the Ilbient scene. And it was like people like DJ Spooky and We and DJ Olive and folks who were kind of taking the language of dance music and twisting it inside out, and you know, taking coloring from drum and bass and from experimental black music and experimental electronic music and fusing it all in all of these ways um, that were really like there wasn't a genre. There was just this mishmash and this kind of much more arty, much more experiential thing. Um, And, you know, it didn't explode beyond New York very much, but it got a lot of critical attention because it was noticed by a lot of the like isolationist folks in in Birmingham and and the north of England and London and there was kind of a, a fusion there um and a lot of the dub folks were were very involved in that um you know and but at that same time you had you know groups like Sonic Youth and so I you know I moved to New York in 1996 and started doing these um the, I started running this festival let me let me just let me just ask you like what what was taking you to these places like why did you move to London and then why did you move to New York I moved to London because I dropped out of art school um and I um I was I was on a scholarship to art school in Baltimore and um was 
realized that I was never going to make it as an artist. And so it was wasting my money and my time. Uh, and I got into this program in London that I realized like, Hey, I'm much better at this kind of like talking about art and talking about the connections between different artists and different styles and history and genres, which, you know, at the time was called curating. And I wanted to study art history to be a curator and was also interested in music and found this program to study art history in London for a semester and um, basically borrowed some money from my parents to go do it. And while I was there, I found out I could get all these records that I couldn't get in the U.S., like British pressings of Detroit techno records and British pressings of what was then called Rare Groove or like old funk and disco records that I couldn't find in the U.S. Um, and started collecting those and went to the school. The school at the time had a, a student union that had a bar with turntables. And I went and said, hey, like I, you have turntables and I want to listen to my records. Can I come in when you're closed and just play these records? Because I don't have a way to listen to them. And the guy said, we need a DJ on Friday nights. I'll give you 50 quid and cab fare. What do you say? And I was like, sure. And and I that was how I became a DJ. I literally had no interest. Which school was this? It doesn't exist anymore. It was called London Guildhall University. And it was, you know, right next to the city. I guess it was technically still in the city, but it was around Guildhall. And the irony is, is that my first gig in London as ambivalent was I was, I was on a bus with a friend. I just landed in London to play this gig. And the friend pointed out the window was like, Hey, that's where you're playing tonight. And I looked and that was the building that was the student union that I first started DJing in. So my first gig back in London was in exactly the same, uh, venue that I had started DJing in. It's just that the, the, the university that I was going to had gone out of business, which says something about the quality of the university, I think. Um, but yeah, so my, you know, art was what brought me into music. I was pursuing a, a passion for art and talking about art and curating art. And then I realized that DJing was like curating music. And that's when I fell in love with it. And, and then I went into curating music literally as uh, working for an art organization in New York in the 90s. Um, who were also throwing a music series. And that was when I started booking shows with Sonic Youth, Carl Craig. Uh, so what year, what year was that? That's in 96, 97? 96, 97 were the first, um, the first years throwing the music series. And that music series happened inside the base of the Brooklyn Bridge, literally under the base of the Brooklyn Bridge in this giant cavernous brick basement uh, under the brick, under the Brooklyn side of the the Brooklyn Bridge, and so we would have you know thousands of people pack into this like underground uh, brick arch basement uh, under the bridge and throw parties. And one night it would be you know hip hop thing, another night it would be experimental rock, another night it would be um, techno. You know, like we did a whole Detroit techno night one year. I did a whole German techno night one year where I had Thomas Brinkman, Zip from Perlon, Thomas Heckman. I did a whole thing with Force Inc. and Meal Plateau where we had Kid 606 and uh, who else? Uh, God, I don't know. I mean, someday I'll talk about all the parties that I threw then. Um, but my pitch to the arts organization was, hey, like, you know, this electronic music thing is, is way more interesting than, you know, some wine sipping snooty art thing like let's get some people in here to experience this stuff and and i was really lucky okay let me let me yeah okay it sounds it does sound interesting um let me ask you um for some 
broad observations on the differences between New York and London at that time? How would you define those? I think I'm not qualified to talk about London in so much as I was just wide-eyed trying to absorb it all. You know, like I had, I, I, I was somebody who, up until I got to London, I ravenously absorbed every copy of the Face magazine I could find, um, which I was just obsessed with because it was so fucking cool, you know. And people like Alexander McQueen and. Um, like just the the whole music scene was just so fascinating to me i wasn't so interested in Britpop necessarily but god it was so interesting from far away um but you know i also for instance i would get um jaunty scruff's uh uh email newsletters that he would send out um r.i.p jaunty he was a he was a wonderful guy who was a great chronicler of the london dance music world in the 90s for anybody who wanted to subscribe and learn about what was going on i learned about you know uh these clubs that were that were a major deal um and you know, because I couldn't see them, I could just imagine them and I could try to find, you know, ways of hearing the music. So like, I remember going to Tower Records in suburban Washington, D.C. to like buy an Ed Rush record because, you know, like that was what I saw on, you know, uh, Jaunty Scruff's uh, email newsletter. You know, it's just, it's it was things like that, that like, um, so anyway, so my experience of London, I don't know, it just felt so explosive and so new and so fresh and unlimited. Um, and it also felt kind of scary and overwhelming too. I mean, I was like, I think I was a little 1995. I was only 20 years old. So I was really like, I was 1920 during my time there. So I was really like, oh my gosh, okay. Like, how do I feel about going to old street to hear like drum and bass? And like, am I going to be welcome there? And like, am I like just this like kind of foppish, naive, like silly waif you know like scrambling into like you know a scene where i wouldn't be welcome and you know i mean there was there was a sense of like danger around a lot of this stuff like i mean just a a hint you know but that was part of the fun i think like it was a it was definitely and i grew up in washington dc like going out and taking your life in your hands to I, i literally went to hardcore shows i went to a hardcore show that was in the middle of a riot like in a church basement where there was police riot police around the block. So I, I, I knew that if it, if it, if people warned you not to go to a neighborhood where a show was happening, that was going to be a good fucking show and you better go, you know? Absolutely. So, and then, okay. And then sort of maybe comparing it to coming back to New York, like what were the, what were the, well, if you can put your finger on any sort of tangible differences, what, what were they? Um, I mean, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but London was so much more expensive. London was so much harder to navigate as, you know, like a, a broke ass college kid who like needed to take public transportation to and from a club. New York. I think the pound was strong then. I think compared to now. Oh my God. Was it fuck you guys for that? (laughs) That sucked. (laughs) I mean, I was lucky that I was like, you know, I was a, I was a college student and I had this side gig making 50 quid a week on, um, from DJing, quote unquote DJing. I mean, I, it did not pass muster by any stretch for DJing, but, um, but I was figuring it out. I mean, I was literally figuring it out to the point where like one of the four people at the back of the bar while I was playing was screaming, hang the DJ halfway through my set at least (laughs) once. Um, so, uh, 
I mean, not, I'm not exaggerating. That literally happened. Um, uh, but, um, but when I moved to New York, I was like, oh, the subway runs all night and you don't have to take, you don't have to wait 20 minutes for a bus to get you halfway there. Um, you know, night buses and the tube shutting down at, what was it, midnight or was it 2 a.m.? I can't, I think it was midnight. The tube shut down at midnight in, in the 90s. I don't know if it still does. Um, and it was expensive. All of it was expensive. And, you know, I had the decision. It's like, okay, I'm making 50 quid a week. Do I want to spend this on more records or do I want to spend this on going and hearing something? And if I go, am I going to get in? And if I get in, am I going to be like unwelcome and like, you know, thrown out or like, you know, elbowed or like, am I going to have fun? Am I, am, and most of this I was doing by myself because I didn't have friends. Literally, I didn't have friends. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know anyone. So I'm like, you know, traipsing around this city by myself, which is adventurous and exciting and something that you can do when you're like 19, 20 years old and naive and excited about where you're, what you're experiencing. But I was also like, not always sure I was up for it, you know, um, trying to absorb what I could. I can't say that I have a definitive window on the, the London scene in 1995 during the, what was it? I guess it was, I guess it was like four or five months that I lived there. So not even really a long time, but enough of a time to make a huge impression on me. I'll say that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when you're that age, that kind of time period really can make a hugely lasting impression for sure. And that time was so explosive. I mean, there are, and it still happens now. I mean, you know, like the, 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 the lifespan of a nightclub can be incredibly short and that lifespan can be, I mean, Studio 54 was only open for, I think, a total of 18 months. And people still talk about it today. You know, this idea that like Bergheim has lasted for like, God, I mean, I went to Bergheim before it was Bergheim. I went to Ostgut in 2003 before it moved into the Bergheim space. So for a club to last 20 years is unheard of. Um, but, you know, a lot can happen in a several, even a one month period. So, okay. So how do we get there? How do we get from here to... Signing to minus in 2006 this is a big, uh, large time scale. Like, when did you start making music in a serious way? I started making music with a cracked copy of Reason in 2002. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Propeller Heads. I actually did go and buy it. So, like, no shade. I, you know, I, I once I used it, I was like, okay, I think I better stop trying to navigate this crack and go, you know, properly pay for it. Um, but yeah, I started in probably 2002. Um, tr- earnestly trying and was this like a was this a sort of long held ambition or was it just like oh, let's have a mess <laughs> alright this is going to be the other great story um, I I went to college one of my one of my very best friends in New York um, during my years at NYU uh, when I finished college at, at New York University here was um, Nancy Huang who is now in LCD Sound System and she was very good friends with James Murphy who became a very good friend of mine and so I spent a lot of time hanging out with all the folks in the DFA scene so there was a whole scene around Plant Bar which was a, a very tiny bar slash club in the East Village here in New York where the whole DFA scene would or what became the DFA scene, you know, like that kind of folks like Shit Robot, um, Marcus Lampkin and um, Tim Sweeney and lots of folks like that were in this club all the time. And James was DJing there all the time. And I was hanging out with James and Nancy a lot and also listening to a lot of techno and all kinds of stuff. Um, And, you know, what became Electro Clash and disco and all this stuff. Um, And (laughs) 
in 2001, Nancy was like, hey, I want to play you this record that James had me sing on. And that record was Losing My Edge. And I remember hanging out with James at some point at Plantain Studios where he recorded all those early LCD records and all the DFA stuff was recorded at that time. And he was like, I was like, James, you're DJing a lot. How are you getting all these gigs? And he said to me, he was like, Kevin, if you want to DJ more, put out a 12 inch. He was like, as soon as you put out a 12 inch, you will get gigs. He was like, trust me, do it. And, um, and I, that kind of became that ambition, but until that moment, it had not been an ambition. So from then until when I started using reason was like maybe six months to a year. And I was just like, okay, I got to figure out how to make a record because James said that I should do this. And I want to DJ more because I'm seeing all my friends get booked. So I want to get booked. I want to be that guy. Uh, and I started making stuff and it was crap, but I would send it to friends. And then I became friends with Jesse Heartthrob and Magda and Troy and all of those kids. And they were a little bit farther ahead. And of course they were getting records from, or tracks from this guy up in Canada named Mark Hool, who I met and, and, you know, like Mark would explain some things to me and Troy would explain some things to me. And Jesse was my roommate. We shared an apartment at that time. So he would listen to things that I was doing and say, Oh, you know, a little bit more, more, more like this or a little bit less like this. And I would hear what he was doing and try to emulate that. And I was friends with Houghton at that time because I had, when I was working for that art organization, I put together this panel discussion and this symposia and I had seen rich do a demo of tractor or uh, sorry of final scratch and asked him to come and demonstrate it for this art and technology festival and became friends with rich and then that became my world so like i'd gone through all of these shifts of being part of all of these scenes and being at the center of all these things and i had a crappy clamshell imac and i had a cracked copy of reason on it and a cracked copy of ableton live version 1.5 where <laughs> where you know they went from like having just audio clips to having midi and i started to learn all that stuff you know and then yeah then started working for Houghton in 2004 i co-produced and helped him produce the first plastic man live show in 2004 and i moved to berlin to help him do that and got fully immersed then i was like going out to let me let me let me stop you there because that's that was on my list of things to yeah to ask you about so how did that come about exactly and what what were you doing precisely on the show so because i had been working at this arts organization doing these big immersive multimedia art and technology uh installations in places like the Brooklyn Bridge, Grand Central Station, Times Square. The the organization I was working for was an organization that had a remit to do art in public spaces. And the the subheader to that was that they were really also interested in the fusion of art and technology in these public spaces because you could do immersive, eye-opening, captivating things and digital technology was just taking off in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and so because I had experience with that and working in video and working with live video, live performance, electronic stuff like that, Rich asked me to help him um, find some people and and organize this Plastic Man live show that he was doing, which was 
at the time he wanted it to be this fusion of live video and live music. And he was like, I don't know how to do this and I have to find, I'll find a way to pay for it. If you can help me find a way to get the people involved to do it. And I had a bunch of video artists that I knew and I had a bunch of, you know, software folks that I knew and I knew some of the gear and some of the technology and I knew the music and I knew Rich. And so he kind of had me be the, the point person for all of that while he was developing how the music would shift. I was interfacing with folks who were developing 2008 technology in 2004. You know, we were really like years ahead and talking to people who were working with Hollywood level 3d graphics and putting that into software that became touch designer, which is now like kind of a foundational, uh, graph video graphical, um, live performance element. So anyway, so I, I did that and in the process, you know, got to know all of these people, uh, or also use, uh, facilitate a lot of my contacts from the music industry, from having done this music series for, five or six years. Um, and then also done a club series here in New York after the Brooklyn bridge space got shut down and I couldn't do that music series. I started to do my own parties here in New York where I had Matthew Deere, Acufin, Magda, guys from Perlon, all this stuff. Cause I was, you know, that was the minimal scene was what I was into in 2003, 2004, and then moved over to Berlin and got even more immersed in it. And that was when it really took off into this whole other thing. Right. So what, did, what year did you move to Berlin? I lived there in 2004 for basically almost all of 2004. Oh, okay. And then, and then moved back to New York, got a real job to make some money. <laughs> and while I, was, while I was making enough money to actually you know, buy some studio equipment and make some records, I was DJing a lot and made some tracks and made a big track that then came out on Minus that then launched my ability to DJ and move back to Berlin in 2008. Right. Okay. So I know it's a really, sorry, that's my life <laughs> no, story. No, 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 that's no, that was, that was what I was after. Absolutely. Um, so was there a point at which, like, I mean, as you mentioned, there was a particular tune which made a big difference, but was there a point at which you started feeling, I guess, I guess it was there an inflection point in terms of how, how confident you felt in terms of making music? Absolutely not. Um, well, no, there was a huge inflection point, but it was not when I was getting success. It was way long after. I was terrified. I mean, I was figuring it out on stage, literally. I was like, because, you know, a Minus didn't put out my first record. Camilla uh, put out my first record on a label called Clink. And those were my homies. I mean, those were like my, like we were a crew in New York and we were as tight as tight could be. We were like family. And... Tim Xavier and Camilla were a couple at the time and they were running Clink and Tim was running man-made mastering out of Brooklyn at the time. And Tim was helping me. He would like mix my stuff for me and master it and put it out. But Camilla put out my first record and she believed in me um, and, and supported me. And it was really because she had done that, that I dug deeper into becoming a producer and trying to take it seriously and really crack my way into things. It just so happened that I was also friends with everybody who was on minus and I was giving them the same tracks. And when I finally had one that really clicked, I remember getting text messages from Troy Pierce at like four o'clock in the morning in New York. Troy was texting me, Rich just played your track on the main floor at Amnesia in Ibiza crowd went nuts he played it twice in one set 
And then I was like, oh, wow, something's happening here. Is this Are You Okay, the track? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But at that point, I had already had two records out and didn't know, or I'd, I'd put out, I had signed, I'd released one record and signed a second, and I had no expectation that I was ever going to be on Minus. It was my dream at that time, because those were my friends, and they were touring the world, and I was like, well, that's a great bandwagon. I want to get on that one. Um but I, you know, I, I, I didn't really have a hope that it was going to happen. And then Are You Okay came out, and suddenly I had a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, that tends, tends to be how it works. So, okay, but you mentioned you'd already been, uh, you'd known Rich pretty well for a, for a number of years at this point. Um, and, and you mentioned at the start the nature of the deal that you signed, which I think was, um, well, my understanding is that that's how basically everyone on Minus uh sort of interact well that was the nature of the deals of the deal that everyone did which is to say that you were exclusive and but there would be um you know you'd get a degree of support from a label which is probably a bit more than you could normally expect is that is that kind of broadly how it how it worked to a degree i think that that it didn't start out that way you know the the two things the the two ways that you the only way that you could get on minus was at that time was fulfilling two criteria. One, you had to be a friend of Rich's. He wasn't taking demos from just like strangers. He had to know you because it wasn't worth it for him to work with people that he didn't know. So number one, you had to, you had to know him and be a friend of his. And number two, you had to make something better than anybody else. You had to make something that was better than anything else he'd heard. And that was a pretty high bar, but that was also what kind of made it interesting was like, okay, you know, that's why Minus was what it was because it was this like very narrow path for only, that only a few people could get through. Um, and Rich at that time was taking Magda and Troy and Mark Hool around with him a bit in Berlin on gigs. And when they started also releasing on on other labels there was there was another label that was basically like oh cool you know we'll take all of your demos from those guys and rich was like wait i'm investing all of this in these artists and getting them gigs and taking them around uh, if i'm if like if there's going to be a label that gets their stuff i want i want to be that label and so that was when he kind of created that framework that was like look if you're if you're touring with me if you're getting the benefits of being on this label then like you're not sharing that music with all these other labels that want to basically just draft off minus. Um, and I think, I think it was fair at the time. It became incredibly unhealthy and incredibly detrimental as time went on. Um, and, um, uh, but I, I think it started with plenty of logic, like lot, like everything that rich does. There are, there's tons of logic and thought behind choices that rich makes. Um, but often they careen into unintended consequences, um, or at least in that time they did. That's a more fair thing to say. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, as you mentioned, like this is a a, you know, a great moment for you, right? Join joining minus. It must have been must have been really exciting, actually. I was ecstatic because I was working at an ad agency that had me working seventy hours a week. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, you know, I mean, just to have some recognition of what I was doing, but also, you know, because I had been so immersed in that scene at that time. I mean, I was I was throwing parties where I had you know people like Roman Flugel and Mode Selector and Isolay and uh, 
Troy and, you know, like Magda and all of these people I would, and Luciano, all, all of these people playing in a club in New York that fit 150 people. And I was, you know, doing all of that and working constantly and in my spare time also trying to find time to make music. And then I have this record that's like being played in the apex of that culture in Europe. I was, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't find, uh, I, I still can't find words for what a transformation that meant for me. Um, it, it changed my life. And I'm forever grateful to everybody who, who made that happen, particularly Rich, that he, you know, he believed in that record and figured out ways to promote it and get it out there and get it heard um, in ways that made it even more successful for me. Sure. And then, okay, so did you basically jump straight in to a sort of... Um a full time well at what point did you, did you go full time i guess is the question uh i waited about a year um I, you know when when are you okay came out at, at that time the the record i did on clink was already pretty successful in the minimal scene at least and so that was getting me attention and local bookings in new york um but the next wave was um was when Are You Okay came out. Then I started getting calls to play other cities, other countries, and, you know, started playing Chicago, Montreal. I played at Mutech. Um, I played, you know, a few, a few gigs here and there. Uh, and then it wasn't me booking myself. That was the thing. It's the only person who would book me before I had records out was me. And to James's wisdom, like, once I started putting out records, other people wanted to spend their money to book me instead of me you know, booking Luciano to come play for a hundred people, um, for 600 bucks on a Thursday night. And I was, I made myself the dedicated opener so that I could be the DJ. Um, then it transforms to other people wanting me to take the headline slot. Um, but nobody wanted to hear me DJ. They wanted a live set because my productions were well known at that time. And I had to figure out how to play live and I didn't really like it. Um, and I was struggling with like, people want to hear my records, but I'm not a great DJ or at least they don't think I'm a great DJ. Well, I knew I wasn't a great DJ. I was not good. I thought I was good enough to play, but they didn't think that. And truth be told, it was probably better that I took a little bit of time to get better. Um, but eventually I was like, Hey, if you want me to play a live set, then you have to also book me for a DJ set to follow after. And then once people heard my DJ sets, they were like, Oh yeah, yeah, fine. Next time just come back and DJ. You know, it was just that it was like, and I was like, yeah, well, that's what I was saying. But yeah, but that's the thing about getting known for your productions is at that time, there was this idea that there was a dichotomy that like you have producers and you have DJs and the, there was an idea that like you couldn't be both. You couldn't be good at both. And if your productions were good, that probably meant you were an average to shitty DJ. <laughs> Which wasn't far off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So just to bring it round to kind of where we started uh, near the start of the conversation, you, know, you mentioned you left minus in 2012 or thereabouts. Um, did you come out of that with a with a clear idea of what you wanted to do i mean like you you mentioned before like you know all the stuff that you did do but like was there a was it a case of just i need to get out of this what had become as you said a sort of restrictive environment was that was that more the overriding thing or was there a, a, a sort of specific set of things that you wanted to get done there were a lot of things i knew i didn't want to do 
I didn't want to have exclusive contracts with anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody what they were allowed to release or what they weren't allowed to release. I didn't want to control anyone's destiny. Um, I didn't want to pick winners or losers. Um, and I also didn't want to be confined by this is what I think is popular. Therefore we're going to like get behind what's successful. Um, and, um, I, um, I wanted artistic and creative freedom. And I also just wanted to engage with a broader audience. I mean, I, you know, Minus at that point had gone through so many levels of like popularity and, uh, and intense focus that the backlash was certainly in full swing. And I didn't want to be there for the backlash because I didn't think I deserved to be part of the backlash because I wasn't really included. I mean, I was really the runt of the litter at Minus. You know, I, I I wasn't allowed to be part of the cube, which, you know, felt hurtful and disappointing at the time. And I look back and go, thank God. But, you know, I, I wasn't part, I, I didn't want to be there for the backlash because I hadn't been there to benefit from a lot of the excitement. I had benefited for sure from some of it, but I didn't get the full benefit. So I was like, well, I don't want to get the full backlash. And I didn't agree with what was happening at Minus. I didn't like a lot of the records that were coming out. I didn't like a lot of the decisions that were being made. I wasn't really a fan of where the whole Ibiza thing was going. And I just, I wanted off that ship and I wanted to chart my own destiny, even if it meant being in a smaller boat. Um, and I, I did want to be in a smaller boat because I felt like if I'm in this smaller boat, then I can sidle up to some of these other boats that I'm much more interested in. I mean, I was playing hot flush tracks. I was playing a made up sound. I was playing, you know, um, all these things, this, like this broad, you know, I was playing clone stuff and I would play sets and people would come up to me and they'd be like, wow, I wasn't expecting that at all. And I'd be like, you know, that's the worst thing to say at the, like, that's the worst compliment you can get. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a compliment, have it be like, I really enjoyed that, you know? And and, you know, you played some things I was surprised to hear, but like the, wow, I didn't expect to like that so much was always like the worst backhanded compliment, <laughs> you know? So getting that enough and, you know, having people, I have to say like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Paul Wolford cause I did a gig with him and he was like, man, I really love what you're doing. And like, and he knew all the records I was playing and he understood where I was going and what I was trying to do. Um, which is why, you know, when I bought the 303 from him, like I was, and that launched LA foray, you know, there's certain people like Paul Wolford, Martin, like Serge from clone folks who like gave me the opportunity to prove that I wasn't this like Richie Houghton knockoff. Um, that was really crucial to me at that time because I was really like confined in this identity that had been placed on me. Um, I, and I took that mantle on gladly at the time. I was excited to be part of Minus, but I also still wanted to be an individual. I just didn't want to be a product. Yeah, I mean, when you when you make a change like that, like being accepted is such a key sort of like thing. It was such a key development, right? And when it happens, it's just like, okay, whew, I can breathe now. You know, it's like... I've... Well, I saw you and all the other dubstep guys able to transition to cooler techno. And I was like, <laughs> how come the dubstep guys get to do it, but the minimal guys don't? I mean, it was far from guaranteed that we would be accepted, to be fair. And I, I was grateful at the time of the fact that it happened, you know? So, yeah. And here we are. Anyway, um, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, this has been great, man. Really appreciate you doing it. It's been it's been quality. Um, just before we go, um, yeah, just give me your three. <laughs> give me your three favorite minimal tracks. 
That's 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 good on this, right? Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, you should have emailed me this. And I hate when people spring the favorite question on me because it's always the worst. All right, oh man, this is not my three favorites, but these are the three that come to mind first. Um, Michelle Meyer, speaker. That is one of the greatest tech. I mean, it is hilarious and genius. I already have goosebumps talking about it. It is so perfect on every level. And it's a fantastic acid track. It's a fantastic techno track. It's witty, hilarious. It is all the things that Minimal was at that time. Because I think I think that record came out 2003, 2004. Um, so it, it was... Minimal didn't take itself so fucking seriously, which is why I loved it. It was like audaciously simple and audaciously self-effacing. It had humor and it had cleverness and it had this like freedom to like make a joke into a track that was like fucking killer. So, okay. Michelle Meyer speaker. Um, Ada birdhouse. I was on Ariel. Um, was it am i saying it right it was birdhouse or was it bird something yeah no i think it was birdhouse i'm just gonna look it up on my computer before i embarrass myself um aerial records was um uh was a real revelation to us at the time um because it was um magda was getting these records from um from germany she would like when when she lived in new york she would like go on tour with rich in germany and come back to new york with all these records that she'd picked up at freebase in frankfurt or hard wax in berlin and she came back with all of these aerial records from like metope and basteroid and Ada, and it was just like oh my god what are these things you know like they were just they were so awesome and yeah so um so that one and then um one two three by um Matias Agayo and Closer Music. It was uh, it was technically Closer Music, but um 123 by Matias uh, by uh, Closer Music. It was uh 123 No Gravity, sorry, that's the um that's the full name. That um that record still brings me to tears. Excuse me, I'm going to get emotional. I'm sorry. Uh, a friend of ours in Detroit, um his name was Troy, Troy Rotovsky. Um Troy was a really special guy. He was always on the dance floor in Detroit. Uh, in a wheelchair and he was um he was a really beautiful soul and um and that record always reminds me of him and he died in 2019 just before the pandemic of leukemia and um while he was going through chemo and struggling you know he was very dear to people like Derek May and Carl Craig and Rich and Magda and all anybody who spent time in Detroit in the early 2000s knew Troy because he was the guy on the dance floor in a wheelchair who was friends with everybody and danced longer than anybody and knew every record. And, um, when Troy got leukemia, um, he started trying to make a record for the first time because he had always tried to make music and never did it. And he finally finished this track and he gave me the track right before he died. And, um, I finished it for him and gave all the parts to, Craig, Car- sorry, to Carl, Craig, and to Derek Placeco and Magda, and Jesse, and a handful of other people, and we all remixed it and put it out after he died on my label, Valance. And that song, One, Two, Three, No Gravity, always makes me think of Troy. So, um, 
Sorry, I didn't expect to get so emotional at the at the end when we're trying to close. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, minimal gets minimal gets termed as like all this like you know faucet drip sink plop plop music that was like you know it gets unfortunately labeled with all of the like bad knockoff stuff similar to dubstep right like dubstep gets um branded by all of the um by the the bad knockoffs or it gets associated with the bad knockoffs but there was some absolutely brilliant music that came out during that during the years before it peaked um and i'm responsible i think for certainly some records that should be forgotten i I, i'll admit that um uh, and there are some records that I made that I think still stand the test of time if you hear them in the context of what was coming out during that period. But there's a lot of music that still really, really is awesome. So yeah, my top three, in case it got cut off, my top three are, in no particular order, Michelle Meyer, Speaker, Ada, Birdhouse, and Closer Music, One, Two, Three, No Gravity. Those are the ones that really stand out to me as like the apex. Yeah. Nice on. Great. Well, Kevin, thanks for your time. It's been awesome. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, that was ambivalent. Got pretty deep towards the end there. He's, uh, like I said at the top, a really interesting guy. I always say that about the guests that we have on the show. I always come away from these conversations feeling really good about people generally. You know, actually, when you talk to someone for two hours, you're generally speaking get to know them a bit you know even people that you know superficially and i keep wanting to say surprise you but it's not a surprise you know it's just nice to get a better idea of how people tick what makes people tick you know and yeah we got some really interesting stuff from kevin today um some really valuable historical stuff which i uh very much enjoyed the birth of that new york minimal scene and his experiences with you know the guys from dfa and all that stuff that was great and also the stuff about the more you know, recent scene. And actually what was really interesting as well was talking about nostalgia in dance music, because that's a big topic, I think. It's a much discussed topic, but I think, you know, it's one which is worth interrogating, 100%. Anyway, this was a great episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hold tight for next week's show, which is also going to be fun. If you're in Berlin, then come out and have a dance with us at Watergate. This Saturday, it's going to be fun. I'm playing with Alan Fitzpatrick and I might see you somewhere else as well in Berlin. Okay, we're done here. As I mentioned at the top, you can support us on Patreon if you feel the need. That would be lovely of you. Patreon.com slash scuba official. There is bonus stuff that goes up every single week in return for your money and also the knowledge that you're just supporting a really good podcast, which I think you'll agree (laughs) this is. Okay, I'm out. I'm done here. I'll see you back here, same time, same place, next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.